the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Your word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the show. It's the Wednesday program. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And this is the Word to Stand On for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls, answering your questions, Bible questions, church questions, questions about stuff going on in your life, whatever is on your heart. All you need to do is to pick up the phone and call 210-340-9585. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. That's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com. Or you can use our free Calvary Chapel of San Antonio mobile app. And as always, if you're driving in your car, the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app. Just hit the Call Now banner at the top of the screen. You'll be connected directly to our studio producer. We have a lot going on here. So a couple of programming notes tomorrow, uh, which is the Date Day program. As you know, we will not be live on the Date Day program. And the reason is because Paul is going to be with about a billion women at our women's retreat. We would appreciate your prayers for Paula, the staff here, and Laura Cowan, who is the guest speaker, uh, who uh, is flying in right now. Uh, We'd appreciate your prayers. Uh, It's probably not too late to go if you want to go, but you can go to our website, calvarysa.com, and sign up if you want to do that. Uh, I will be back here live on Friday with the program with a special guest, Pastor John Cowan, Laura's husband. He's going to be here with me, and I'm really in, interested in, uh, in in sharing the time with him. Um, there's a lot about him that I'm just learning. It's really cool stuff. So uh, we'll be here Friday as usual at 4 o'clock on AM 630 The Word. Let me get to some questions while we wait your phone calls or other questions coming in. Uh, the first question here is from um, Wayne, and he says, um, I listen to the words, the word to stand on daily. This has come up in a recent Bible study and was wondering your take. Please clarify. He's got two verses, Matthew uh, 12, 40 and Matthew 12, uh, 40, two different translations. The NASB says, For just as Jonah was in the stomach of the sea monster for three days and three nights, so will the Son of Man be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. Matthew twelve forty says this, um, while, and this is King James, um, while in the... Oh, I'm sorry, same thing. Uh, while in the... Belly of the big fish, the whale, Jonah prayed to God for help, repented, and praised God. This is not King James. For three days, Jonah sat in the belly of the fish. Then God had the big fish throw up Jonah onto the shores of Nineveh. Jonah preached to Nineveh and warned them to repent before the city is destroyed in 40 days. I don't know um, um, when... 
what translation that is. I don't think that's the NIV either. So uh, he's got the King James listed also. For as Jonas was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And Wayne says, thank you. Wayne, a couple of things. And we get this question fairly frequently on the program. Um, one of the things you've got to understand, this does not mean for 72 hours Jesus was in the ground, nor does it mean for 72 hours Jonah was in the belly of the whale. Um, we're, we're thinking of 24-hour days, and, um, okay, it has to be that. And then, of course, we go with Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, and we know Jesus wasn't in the uh, the tomb for three days or for 72 hours. So people say, well, see, that's, that's uh, an inconsistency or contradiction. It's neither. And I always explain this. We've got to understand the Jewishness of um, Jesus's ministry and the, the gospel accounts, in particularly Matthew's account, because his is the most Jewish of all. And all that we're trying to say here is that Jesus was in the in the earth for three days. Now, a Jewish way of saying that was three days and three nights. Uh, we, we actually, we would call night first. Their, their, their time was different than ours. But the idea here, Wayne, is that uh, Jewish thought, any part of a day counted as a day. We, we do the same thing. If somebody says, yeah, I spent the weekend uh, doing this or doing that, uh, we'd say, well, wait a minute. Do you really spend all day Thursday, all day Friday, and all day Saturday? That's the weekend. And they say, no, I was there Thursday. Then we got up Friday and Saturday. We left early. But I was still there for three days. It was exactly the same thing. So this is simply a way, a Jewish way of saying three days, three days and three nights. It does not mean, nor does it cause any problems, uh, it does not mean 72 continuous hours and then Jesus uh, was raised from the dead. It's not that at all. I know people that have been struggling, Wayne, for years trying to reconcile, well, there must have been a special Sabbath. Jesus must have been crucified on a Thursday. No, we know when he was crucified. And uh, it's just a Jewish way of saying that. So there's no tension, contradiction, no problem at all. Um, hermeneutically trying to understand that at all. Let me recommend to everybody in the audience, if you've got questions about um, the Jewishness of Jesus' ministry, I cannot recommend highly enough the book The Life and Times of the Messiah by Alfred Edersheim. It is an essential to any library who wants to study in depth uh, the ministry of Jesus, the, 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 the sayings of Jesus, the context of the things going on during Jesus's gospel accounts. Um, the Life and Times of the Messiah by Alfred Edersheim. It is um, public domain now, so you can get it for free. But I believe with all my heart, it's something, a book, a real physical book that we ought to have in our library. So hope that helps, Wayne. Thank you very, very much. Here's a question from Glenn. He wants to know, is dancing in the church appropriate? Um, it depends what you mean by dancing in the church. We had a father-daughter, uh, our annual father-daughter dance just a few days ago, but it wasn't a church service. Uh, I think what you're probably referring to, Glenn, is people getting up and going all, all around the church. And there are times it's not appropriate at all, but there's sometimes, and there's different church cultures and different ways of doing churches. I know that in the black church, um, dancing and, and uh, streamers and um, programs like that are fairly common, and they're not out of order. They're not uh, out of control at all. Uh, I think uh, th there's no problem at all. Now, we've also seen people getting up and moving around and dancing and uh, flailing over in completely out of control uh, church services. Uh, so it depends on the, the uh, organization. It depends on uh, who's doing it, what's happening in it. And uh, I think I think it's appropriate depending on the context of the dancing in the church. So I hope that helps. There are times when worship gets uh, kind of crazy, Glenn. And when when it gets crazy, it doesn't really can't be defined as worship any longer because the attention is being taken off the worship of the Lord and the attention then is being put on the people that are moving around. Now, I get the arguments all the time from people who say, well, well, you know, we just have to get up and move. The Spirit is leading. The Holy Spirit never leads to disorder. 
The Holy Spirit never, ever, ever leads to disorder in the church. We've got pretty strict guidelines given to us uh, in our New Testament about what is orderly and what is not orderly. And I think in, in many cases, dancing is not appropriate. There are other places where it's extension of the worship. And uh, in many cases, it's teenagers uh, who have a special ministry when they're dancing in the church. And again, depending on the context of that worship, that would not be inappropriate at all. Thank you, Glenn. Appreciate the question. Here is an anonymous question. Uh, Pastor, I'm engaged to a man who says he's a believer, but he isn't kind, and he really doesn't want to go to church with me. Can I have your thoughts? Yeah. Get out. Get out now. Why would anybody want to be engaged to a man who isn't kind? Forget the fact that, that he may not be a believer, but why would you want to be engaged to a man who isn't kind? It makes no sense to me. Kindness is a fruit of the Spirit from Galatians chapter 5. And somebody who is a real believer will be kind. Um, that's what happens when we walk in the Spirit. And, and let me, I think, I think more problematic is the second part of this. He doesn't really want to go to church with you. Why would you want to get involved in an unequally yoked relationship? Uh, from my perspective, Anonymous, I simply don't understand how any believer doesn't want to be in church. I realize we live in a spiritually lazy culture. I realize, especially following COVID, that people got used to having church in their pajamas and, you know, they just kind of uh, do church the easy way. I've been teaching through Second Kings. And by the way, I'll be doing that tonight, uh, finishing the reign of Josiah. But... Um, um, We've been talking about the destruction of the high places. And most of the kings, even good kings, didn't remove the high places. Josiah did. Now, the high places were um, the the Old Testament equivalent of, of convenient worship. I get people all the time say, well, Pastor Ron, I watch every week online. Um, that's not church. Plain and simple, that is not Church, church is where you are fellowshipping with other people, where you're using the gifts that God has given you to be a blessing to others. We're not hoarding it. This is comfortable for me, so this is what I'm looking for. We can't do that. That's convenient worship, and God absolutely hates it. So Anonymous, if I were your pastor, and I'm not, but if I were your pastor, uh, I would beg you to dump this guy and stay as far away from him as you possibly can. This is not a relationship that's going to bring you any long-term satisfaction at all. Thank you for asking the question. Here is a question from Lisa. She says, my question is about Jeremiah 29, 11, where God, it says God wants to prosper us. So why are you opposed to the prosperity gospel? Um, you know, Lisa, when, when churches and pastors just throw out Jeremiah twenty eleven, I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. We love that passage of Scripture. We, we need to understand the context of that passage. Um, Israel, Jerusalem, was under the control of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar. And Jeremiah is prophesying in Jerusalem um, Ezekiel is doing the same thing in Babylon. Jeremiah is prophesying in in, in uh, uh, Israel, and it just it seems to be hopeless to him. And God props him up and says, "Don't worry, Jeremiah. I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you, not to harm you." And and he was referring to the fact that Israel would come back, and God's promises would be fulfilled. So this has nothing whatsoever to do with financial blessings. And the prosperity gospel, we stand in opposition to that because it's not the gospel at all. You know, the prosperity gospel is like a pyramid scheme. It's only good news for the guy at the top. And we got a lot of pastors telling you that God wants you to be rich. And um, we can all watch him driving the expensive car and living in the gated community and wearing expensive jewelry while the rest of us are trying to keep our cars going. We got oil, quarts of oil in the back seat because we've got to keep pouring oil in the car and we're giving our money to them and trying to obligate God to give something to us. Jeremiah twenty nine eleven knows nothing of that. So the prosperity gospel is a false gospel. You know, Lisa, when I first got saved, um, uh, I had been 
uh, wealthy, uh, very successful businessman. And as my life fell apart, I lost a veritable fortune. And it appeared to me as though the only thing, the only thing that could save me was more money. And when I got saved, there were people telling me, well, God wants you to be rich and all you have to do is believe it and name it and claim it. Well, the, the, the reality with that was it didn't work. Now, I was uh, almost 40 years of age and I really wanted those people to be right. But there was something in my heart, some discernment, the Holy Spirit that was saying, you know, you better check this out. And um, it just became very clear to me that that was a misunderstanding at best and false teaching at worst. Um, and we had to decide, are we going to follow Jesus? I remember the day I cried out to him. I remember saying very specifically, Jesus, I don't know who you are. I know you're my savior. I know I'm going to heaven, but I don't know who you are. This, these people say, you want me to be rich. And, and I, I was very candid. I said, Lord, I'm rooting for them. I want them to be right. But the other people saying that's not who you are at all. And I'm new in this, Lord. I don't know. Show me who you are. And at that point, Lisa, he began opening the word to me. And I knew it wasn't true. The, the next day, I remember going to this uh, school of theology library where I studied. And I mean, I was studying 8, 10, 12 hours a day sometimes. And um, um, I walked into the room, had a door on it. I could shut it and I had the room all to myself, and I remember um, looking at the table, and there was a book. I had a bunch of books that I brought in there, but there was another book. And I just picked up the book. I looked at it, and it was like the Spirit of God was saying, read this book. It was The Cost of Discipleship by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And at that moment, I realized that was God's answer to me and the cry of my heart, God, I need to know who you are. What was really funny, I mean, I, I read that book and started taking notes. I had a legal pad, and the legal pad was full of notes. I mean, almost the whole legal pad. And I remember going home and saying, Paula, we have to unlearn some things that we've been learning. And, and I think the Lord showed us who Jesus really is. And we went through those notes and through that book, page by page together. You need to know who Jesus really is. And Jesus doesn't care if you're rich. I did a Bible study recently in Second Kings. Actually, it was Second Kings chapter 4. And there was a, um, a woman whose husband had died. He was a servant of God. Josephus, right or wrong, tells us that it was Obadiah, the prophet in our Bible. And when he died... Having been faithful, his wife had nothing left at all. A wife and a son. There was nothing left. And Elisha was there and heard their cry and their prayer. And, of course, you know the story. She kept pouring oil until there were no more jars. And I point that out because serving God is not a promise of financial prosperity. Nor is it a promise in the atonement of physical healing. So God wants us to prosper spiritually. He wants us to demonstrate fruit of the Spirit. He wants us to walk with Him. And your heart will be full and your life abundant. That's what Jesus promised us, an abundant life. But not an abundant life in terms of finances. So Lisa, hope that helps. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is a question from Mitchell. He says, how can I respond to gay people who say they are Christians? Mitchell, if they're actively practicing homosexuality, then you simply tell them you can't be both an active homosexual and a Christian. And I think we need to be very direct. Now, we need to do it with kindness. I say to our church all the time, you can be direct and kind at the same time, but you have to be uh, kind and you've got to tell them the truth. And we don't want people to fool themselves. We don't want people to think that they can live any way they want to. I had somebody who called 
uh, a couple of weeks ago on the Asbury Revival and said, yeah, but you don't, you're saying, well, maybe the Spirit of God is moving, but can't be because there are homosexuals who are on that stage. And I said, well, you know what? Maybe they're repenting. That's what really began that move of God's Spirit in Asbury. Um, people were repenting, confessing their sins. Wouldn't it be wonderful if that's what they were doing? And yet we'd immediately jump to conclusions, you know, like we're the Holy Spirit police. And we've got to stop that because there's a gay person there. No, we want gay people to be convicted of sinful behavior. And we want them to turn to Jesus Christ. Now, if they're still same-sex attracted, which is usually the case after they become Christians, then they will live celibate lives, which is abundantly pleasing to the Lord. Imagine the sacrifice they're making a whole part of their lives, loving someone uh, in 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 uh, that that way, in a partnership way, um, the the sexual aspect of who we are, and they're saying to follow Jesus, I'm going to give all of that up because He's more important. That pleases God, Mitchell, to no end. So we have to tell them the truth, do it kindly, do it in love, and then if they don't listen, then stop talking. That's my rule of thumb. When people stop listening, I stop talking. So I think that's the best way you can do it. You know, we get some calls from time to time about progressive Christianity. Uh, and and uh, I, I say progressive Christianity is neither. It is neither progressive and it is not Christianity. And uh, I think we've got to know that. If they think they're saved and, no, God's okay with this. God wants me to, to, to love somebody. Um, well, then they're going to have to account for that decision when they stand before Jesus Christ. The Bible clearly says that every knee will bow and every tongue confess. And that's everybody. And Mitchell, for for you and for me, that's going to be a glorious moment. A glorious moment when we, we make that profession of faith. But for the unbelieving world, it is going to be the most terrifying moment of their lives with eternal consequences. That's why we have to tell them the truth and tell them the truth in love. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions or toll free 877-630-KSLR. Here's an anonymous Christian who says, Pastor Ron, I'm a new Christian who recently married. My family says we're not really married because the Catholic Church didn't approve of the marriage. Is that true? Anonymous, I get this uh, a lot. We, we have tons and tons and tons of Catholics who get born again and and their family, well, you were baptized once. If you get baptized again, then God is going to curse you. And if you get married, it not in the Catholic Church. It's not a real marriage. None of that's true. None of that's true. So don't worry about what they say. Um, you're a Christian. You're born again. Uh, you and your wife or you and your husband um, have celebrated that marriage before God and before witnesses in the church. So no, you don't have to be married in the Catholic Church. And don't argue with people. Just just what I do is I tell them, look, read your Bible, and then we'll talk. Just read your Bible, and then we'll talk. So don't worry about it. You are married. God is pleased. Uh, now you and your wife or you and your husband uh, together serve Jesus. Amos 3.3 says, how can two serve uh, or walk together unless they agree to do so. Well, you and your spouse have agreed to walk together with Jesus. And that's the only thing that you need. The only thing you need to know that you're walking in the Spirit, you're walking in the will of God, and you can't miss the will of God when you're walking with Jesus. Thank you, Anonymous. Billy says, When Jesus died, did God die? If he did... How can God die? Um, Billy, the humanity of Jesus, the human part of Jesus. Remember, Jesus was 100% man and 100% God. And when he gave up his spirit, remember him crying out with the last bit of breath and strength that he had, it is finished. Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. Um, that's when Jesus, who was God, went instantly into the presence of his Father. 
and they were united again the way they've been united from the beginning of time. But the man, Jesus, after uh, receiving punishment for the sins of the world, for your sins, Billy, and mine, the man, Jesus, died. His humanity died, but his deity didn't die. You're absolutely right. Uh, God cannot die, but Jesus, the man, died. I always find it interesting that Jesus' favorite title for himself seemed to be the Son of Man. Um, that's primarily from Ezekiel, not exclusively, but but uh, Jesus was almost emphasizing his humanity. And it was his humanity that walked the earth. It was his humanity that took orders from his Father in heaven. I only do what I see my Father do. I only say what I hear my Father say. I love the fact that Jesus walked by the fullness of the Spirit. Now, obviously, the Spirit was given to him without measure, uh, you and I, our, our measure is our, our carnality, our flesh. Jesus didn't have a sin nature. So when Jesus walked the earth, he did everything as a man. The miracles he did, he did because he saw his father doing them. Going out to pray all night, even before choosing his 12 disciples. That was, I like to say, orders from headquarters. So, really important. God did not die. Only Jesus the man died because he was dying for the sins of mankind. Hey, we've got 30 minutes left. Phone's been quiet today. 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. This is The Word to Stand Up for Life. I'll be back in two minutes. Welcome back to the Word to Stand On for Life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the second half of our Wednesday show, 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here's a question anonymously sent in just a minute ago by our, our to the studio. Anonymous says... I have a friend that is a Christian who believes in the New Testament, but not in the Old Testament. What should I say to this friend? Um, you know, these these are conversations that, that we need to have with friends. It's a friend, so he ought to be able to trust your motives. But challenge him. Well, I, I would say, well, well, why would you believe that? On what basis do you not believe that the Old Testament is the inspired Word of God? Now, the answer to the question, whether the person will recognize it or not, is that he doesn't understand it. He's never really studied studied it. He's probably offended by the harsh punishments uh, for violators of the law, or maybe the, the 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 campaigns in Canaan where men, women, and children were all destroyed. Well, I just don't like that Jesus. We need to understand that the Jesus of the Old Testament is exactly the same as the Jesus of the New Testament. And, you know, what happened in Canaan is nothing literally compared to what's going to happen in our New Testament in Revelation chapter 19 when Jesus comes back and destroys his enemies. So it's the same exact Jesus. But when you have these conversations, it's not sufficient. Just say, well, well, it is inspired by God. Ask questions. Why don't you believe it? And then challenge that person to actually read it for himself. Actually read it for himself. You read it. You find something that you don't believe. Now, maybe it's they don't believe that Adam and Eve were the first two people on earth because they believe that knuckle-draggers existed before humans. Maybe they believe in evolution. This is an opportunity to witness your faith and to challenge them to really dig in. So often what we do is we just repeat these same old tired cliche answers that we hear from critics of the Bible. It's easier to say, well, I just can't believe that, that, that dinosaurs didn't exist. Well, they did. I can show you. I can't believe that, that uh, Cro-Magnon man didn't, or Neanderthal man didn't exist. Um, challenge him. You, here's what it says. In the beginning, God. Do you believe it? Or don't you believe it? And if you say you don't believe it, the consequences are severe and they're eternal. So, the Old Testament, I've always looked at the Old Testament 
And there's a lot. I like the historical books in particular. But I've always looked at the Old Testament. Um, the way to study it is to look for Jesus in it. It's Jesus is on every page. And and it's sort of like the old connect-the-dots coloring books that we used to have. And when you connect the dots in the Old Testament, what you get is an outline. You get a picture of greater things to come. And then when you get into the New Testament, you get to color in those lines. And for me, that always made a lot of sense. So don't just argue about it, but challenge him. Why don't you believe it? And most of the time, they'll just say something nonsensical. They're they're easy arguments to refute. But what you want is somebody who's actually going to listen to you. So it's not an argument. It's just, I want to know, because it's so important that you believe that the Word of God, the Bible, all of it, 66 books, all of it is the very words of very God. So why don't you believe it? And then you can talk to him about those particular issues, and all he has to do is check it out. One more thought here, Anonymous, Um, especially in this case, because he said, well, I believe that the New Testament is the Word of God. What's real simple? Uh, Start at the end. Do you believe that Jesus was crucified, that he rose from the dead, and that he's alive right now? We have an empty tomb that proves it. The, The apostles sacrifice their lives for that truth when it would have been so easy for them to just say, no, I don't believe it anymore and save their lives. If they believe that, then they can work backwards. You can go to John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. And they go down to verse 14. And the Word dwelt among us or tabernacled with us. And then you go to Genesis 1.1 the same God, same story, but it's all pointing to the arrival of Jesus. It's also important, I think, especially as you go through the Gospel Accounts Anonymous, to um, call to the attention of your friend all the times Jesus quoted from the Old Testament. Do you believe Jesus was lying? He said Adam and Eve were the first two people on earth. He said Jonah was in the the belly of the fish. Do you believe Jesus? Now, if Jesus is lying to you, then Jesus can't die for our sins and we're all lost. So you've got to understand it and, and exclusively anonymous. The people that just don't want to accept the Old Testament because it hurts their feelings or or, or they just don't understand how God could be so harsh. Um, they just really haven't dug in to check it out. Good question. Thank you very, very much. Here is our next question. This one comes from Timothy. Uh, Timothy says, what happens to animals when they die? Now, Timothy, I don't know if you're five years old or 25 years old, so I'm not saying this to hurt your feelings at all, but when animals die, they just cease to exist. They don't have souls or spirits. The terms are interchangeable. They don't go into the presence of the Lord. Animals are a gift from God to us. So if you had a dog or if you had a cat and you loved that dog so much and that dog died, um, um, just consider that for the time you had that dog, God loved you so much, Timothy, that he gave you that gift to enjoy. That's a picture of God's goodness. I always tell our people here at the church, so look for God's goodness every day. Revel in the goodness of God. When you look at a pet who loves you unconditionally, Paul and I had a dog for 15 years. He was a huge dog. He sat in my lap, 120 pounds. Sat in my lap every every night when I'd get home. Um, got the last bite probably of everything that I ever ate. Um, he just was my dog. And um, taught me how to be a pastor. I know that's a funny sounding thing, but... He really did, as we cared for him in his old age. And he died, and all I could think about was, God, you were so good to let that dog be a part of our lives. So animals just cease to be. Not so with humans, Timothy. When you die, when I die, we go directly into the presence of Jesus. I always feel like I'm crushing some little boy or little girl when I am asked that question. I get asked that question a lot. Theo says, 
The Bible seems to show God favors some people over others. For example, he chose Jacob and not Esau. Why does God favor some over others? Uh, this is the, the question you're really asking is the, the, the question on the doctrine of election, Theo. And um, um, if you look very closely at the choices God makes, why did he choose Jacob over Esau? Well, Romans 8, 29, 1 Peter 1, 1 says very clearly that God chooses based on his foreknowledge. So, with Esau and Jacob, God chose Jacob because he knew that Jacob, though Jacob was no superstar, believe me, he wasn't a, a, a guy with stellar character. But he knew that Jacob was eventually going to get to that place where, where he would serve the Lord. Esau, he knew in advance that Esau was going to sell him for a bowl of stew. Esau was more concerned. Paul says the food for the stomach and the stomach for food. Uh, Esau cared nothing about his blessing. So if if you knew that about those two brothers, they're twins. It wasn't based on what either one of them did. They, they were twins. And before they'd done anything good or bad, God said the older will serve the younger. Well, why would God make that choice? Well, the answer is simple. He knew Esau wanted nothing to do with him. So if you were God, would you have chosen somebody who didn't want anything to do with you? Or would you have chosen the one, though difficult, would you have chosen the one that you know is going to bow a knee to you? I love Jacob. What a story he is. Genesis chapter 32, he wrestled with Jesus all night long, trying to get away with him. God finally says, okay, you want to get away? I'm going to let go. But before I let go, he touched him and crippled him. I mean, he realized Jacob did the power that he was trying to get away with, or get away from, rather. And uh, that's when Jacob grabbed on. I love Jesus. He said, so, so why are you holding on to me now? And Jacob's response was, I will not let go until you bless me. And I've been saying that every day of my life since I've been saved for 32 years now. Every morning, I will not let go, Lord. Hold on tight. I'm not letting go because I'm going to be holding on to you. So God makes choices. It's not favoritism. We know that God doesn't play favorites. It's simply God chooses based on what he knows about each and every one of us. So, Theo, that's why God favors some. He'd love to love everybody the same way. God is love. But you can't love somebody who won't love you back, and that's exactly what God is doing. Daryl says, can you please explain the parable of the ten versions, what it's all about from Matthew 25? Um, Daryl, one of the problems that we have with interpreting parables is that we try to read too much in them. You know, we get the details of the story, the five foolish virgins tried to buy oil for their lamps from the others, and we think, well, wait a minute, are we supposed to try to buy the, the Holy Spirit? Um, the, the, the one point in that parable, and every parable has one main point, period. And the point of that parable is to be ready. It's a parable about readiness. When the time came, there were five virgins who were ready. They had oil in their lamps. They were ready for the, 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 the travel at night. The five foolish virgins uh, didn't have any oil. They weren't prepared. And the picture, of course, is you and I, Daryl, we're to be ready for the return of Jesus Christ. He says he's going to come as a thief at a time when we don't expect it. Now, if we don't know when he's coming, and he's going to come at a time that we don't expect, then it's incumbent upon us to be ready every single day. The way we do that is to live our lives ready for the return of Jesus Christ. I don't want to be caught off guard. If Jesus decides to come uh, tonight, I don't want to be out doing something that I ought not to do. So I'm going to live my life in a circumspect manner. I'm going to live my life in a way that, that is pleasing to the Lord. You know, the Apostle Paul says, find out what pleases the Lord. And if you're doing that, if you're living your life that way, then you're ready. And Daryl, that is the only thing that that parable is trying to communicate. Live ready. Jesus said, I'm coming soon. He's warned us. And so we have to live our lives accordingly. And I think it's obvious, Daryl, that all of us would make a lot different decisions in our 
day by day, hour by hour lives if we truly believed that Jesus was coming tonight. We get up in the morning. I get up every morning. I look at the eastern sky. Jesus, today could be the day. And then I say, today of my own free will, I choose to serve you. Not by might nor by power, but by your spirit in your name and for your glory. And then I put my hand out, as I said a moment ago, to the other question. Um, um, Jesus, I, I extend my hand to you by faith. I take your hand in faith and I will not let go until you bless me. So that's the parable, Daryl. It is only about readiness. You know, the other parable that people really read too much into is the parable of the sower. Well, which of those grounds save people and which aren't saved people? That's to miss the point. The, the parable of the sower isn't about um, whether or not these people are getting saved. The parable of the sower is written to us that we are to scatter, we're to throw the word of God everywhere we go. We're to be ready with an answer. And we do that by proclaiming the word of God everywhere we go. That's what they did. The farmer in the parable, he's scattering seed, he's throwing it, he's not being careful where he's throwing it. He's just throwing it everywhere. And so all of the parables have one primary point And if you read more than that into the parables, then you're going to get sidetracked and miss a lot. There's a good book, by the way, by Herbert Lockyer, Um, all the parables uh, in the Bible, uh, and especially significant are Jesus's parables. And I think that's one of the authoritative works, commentaries on the parables in the Bible. Lockyer, L-O-C-K-Y-E-A-R, I think is the spelling. Thank you, Daryl. I appreciate it very, very much. 340-9585 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is a question from Oscar. He says, I recently gave my life to Christ, but I don't feel anything. How long does it take to feel saved and feel happy? Oscar, don't depend on how you feel. Salvation is a matter of faith. It's not a matter of feeling at all. You know, when I gave my life to Christ Oscar, I felt like a billion pounds of pressure was lifted off of my back. Uh, I knew I was saved. I knew I was going to heaven. And and for a time, I was giddy about it. Um, um, Then you start opening your Bible and, and, and you deal with all the things that you don't understand. I remember very clearly thinking, okay, Lord, how long is it going to take before I understand all of this? Uh, Well, 32 years later, here I am. I'm still learning Um, what the Bible says. But, um, again, it's not a matter of what you feel. It's a matter of what's true. And so, Oscar, when you don't feel anything or when you don't feel saved or feel happy, then what you've got to do is open the Bible, read the promises of God. And for me, and I try to make it easy for people, Oscar, I, I just tell them, go to Romans 8. The promises in just Romans 8 So it's not too big a hill to climb. Just Romans 8, just the promises in that one chapter. Do you believe them? And if you believe them, you're going to feel saved because you're going to know you are. And it's not a matter, again, of feelings or emotions. It's a matter of what you know to be true. So that's what you do. You simply um, hold on to the promises of God. Feeling happy. Um, Frankly, God doesn't really care if we're happy. He wants us to be filled with joy, and joy um, overwhelms uh, sadness. It doesn't mean the sadness won't be there. It just means that the joy of the Lord will be our strength. The the Bible says in his presence is the fullness of joy. So when we're in the presence of the Lord, then we're going to be filled with joy. Again, that doesn't mean happy. It doesn't mean your life is without difficulty. Uh, It doesn't mean that we're not going to be sad sometimes. What it means is that it's in those times when we are struggling. It's in those times when we are sad. Um, Those are the times, Oscar, that we, we need to know that we're in his hands. We don't have to do anything. We're just in his hands. Just believe and be obedient. And once you're obedient, God gives the Holy Spirit, Acts 5.32 says, to those who obey. Uh, And you're going to recognize that there is a different you. 
So some of us, Oscar, immediately feel relief, immediately feel happy. Um, uh, I, I, I actually, I, I n- I've never been raised in church, and I had never opened a Bible when I got saved. Um, and I was skipping down the street. I mean, I'm almost 40 years old, and I'm so, so filled with joy. I couldn't contain it. And then I had to tell everybody I knew about Jesus. I would look into people's eyes, stare into people's eyes, wondering, Lord, are they saved? Are they yours? Can I talk to them, make it, a, uh, uh, make it possible uh, to, to open up a conversation? That was all a result of, of just being so grateful that I was no longer headed for hell. So, Oscar, believe and then walk by faith and let the presence of God be your strength and your source of joy. Thank you, Oscar. Glad that you recently gave your life to Jesus. We've got a phone call holding. Let's go to Ronnie from San Antonio on line one. Ronnie, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hi, Pastor Ronnie. Uh, just have a quick question. I was rereading chapter four of Second Timothy, and my question was about it says, be ready in season and out of season. I'm just <laughs> wondering what the in season and out of season was. Thank and you, I'll Ronnie. Good. Thank you. And you got a great name, by the way. <laughs> I, keep, <laughs> I keep telling them that we have a million babies in the church. I keep telling them, come on, pick the name Ronnie. It can be a boy or a girl. It doesn't matter. It's a wonderful name. Um, be ready in season and out of season. Uh, all it means, Ronnie, is that we always have to be ready for whatever ministry God brings in our way. Doesn't matter how you feel. It doesn't matter whether you're going through a good time or a bad time. It doesn't matter whether you're tired or full of energy. Be ready. And you say, well, I, I, if I don't feel good or if I'm tired, how can I be ready? Well, that's what the power of the Holy Spirit is really all about. So, Ronnie, that's all it means. Be instant, in season, out of season. You know, we Christians, we spiritualize stuff, and we'll talk about, well, well, I'm going through a season right now where things aren't good, or I'm not doing this, or I'm taking some time off. We're never called to rest. We're never called to take it easy. The Apostle Paul wrote that we are to be instant, not only in season, out of season, but he of his own ministry said that I'm spent Yet I'm willing to be spent even more. In other words, I have nothing left to give. And it's in those times when he has nothing left to give that he has to depend. Ronnie, it's when you and I have to depend on Jesus completely. So those are those times. Instant in season and out of season. The the easier way to understand that is to always be ready. We should always be sharing our faith. What did Paul write to Philemon? In the sixth verse of that precious little letter, he said, I pray that you'll be active in sharing your faith so that you'll have a full understanding of every good thing that we have in Christ. That's one way to be instant in and out of season. Always, always be sharing our faith. Always be looking for opportunities to use your gifts. I've had people come in and say, well, you know, I've had a bad week and I'm in a bad mood and I messed up this week and I don't really feel like worshiping. Well, it doesn't matter. We worship because of what he's already done and has nothing to do with the kind of week that we've had. So to be ready in season and out of season is simply a way of saying always be ready to be used by the Lord. Offer your bodies, Paul says, as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to the Lord. If we're living that way, if our minds are being transformed by 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 the by the word of god by by the 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 by new thinking well then we're always going to be ready we should get up every day and again repeating this from a call a few times a minutes ago but get up in the morning and offer yourself to the lord today of my own free will i choose to serve jesus that's what i say and that sort of sets my mind and heart in going the same direction. doesn't matter how I feel. doesn't matter how I slept. It doesn't matter what difficulties I'm going to face that day. The only thing that matters is I serve God. 
So, Ronnie, that's what it means in season and out. One final comment on this. You know, I get a lot of people that will come, especially if they've had a a negative experience in another church. And we get so many new people coming every single week. And people will say, well, you know, I got burned out at my old church. And so I'm just going to sit back and take some time off. There's never a season to do that. Satan loves stationary targets. And when we're just kicking back, we're doing things for us or we're being selfish rather than selfless. Well, that's when the enemy's going to pour it on. And what we need to remember is that the only safe place is to be using the gifts that God has given you. Walking with Jesus in the will of God because that's where the power is always available to us. Thank you for that question. Here is probably the last one I got for today. Um, it is from Rod. Uh, he says, if our sins are forgiven, why will Christians still be judged in heaven? Um, Rod, our sins are forgiven. When you get born again, past, present, and future sins, all wiped out, covered by the blood of Jesus. Whenever I get this question, I always remember Crystal Lewis's song, The Bloodstained Pages. I love that. Um, we're judged not for our sins because they're wiped out covered by the blood of Jesus, but we're judged for our works. And it's a a judgment that results in winning or losing rewards. That's all it is. It's the Bema seat, B-E-M-A, the Greek word. It's sort of like a picture of the Olympic Games when you see people standing on the Olympic podium and they're they're having uh, medals placed around their neck. They're getting their reward. And they're getting their reward just like you and I will also lose rewards. So that's the judgment seat, 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and Romans chapter 12. Remember, we will not be live with the date day edition of the program. The only time we cancel it purposely is because Paula will be with the ladies. Would you please pray for our ladies retreat? May the Lord bless you and keep you. I'll be back live Friday on AM 630 The Word. We'll see you then. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapels, The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.